Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fiduciary Investors Series podcast. I'm Amanda White, Director of Institutional Content at Connexus Financial and editor of top1000funds.com. I'm joined today by Professor Stephen Kotkin, where we're going to discuss a rather large topic, the end of globalisation. Stephen is the John P. Birkeland Professor in History and International Affairs at Princeton University. He's the co-director of the program in history and the practice of diplomacy and the director of the Princeton Institute for International and Regional Studies. He established the Princeton Department's Global History Initiative and Workshop and teaches the graduate seminar on global history since the 1950s. He also holds a joint appointment in the Woodrow Wilson School for Public and International Affairs at Princeton and is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. He's authored many books, including his latest, Stalin Waiting for Hitler. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. So, Stephen, you live in New York City, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has ordered sweeping restrictions on public life, something so much in the DNA of New Yorkers. How's the mood there? Uh, Profound shock. No one really knows this kind of life. There's an eerie sense of kind of being suspended somewhere, not in one's real life. And there's just vast, vast uncertainty. Now, the mood is different depending on what part of the population you're talking about. The work from home people who were already working from home, that is, their adjustment has been relatively small. Uh, People like myself, who uh, have a laptop as our primary workstation, are highly mobile, are paid a salary rather than an hourly wage, and just in general experience the city and its economy very differently. The vast majority of the people, uh, they can't work from home. Restaurant workers, custodians, drivers, they don't have this option. This is very new for them, and they're potentially in danger of being unable to pay the bills, being unable to put food on the table. It's very, very worrisome. The kids are out of school. New York City has the largest school system in in the United States, 1.1 million school children from K through 12. And at least 750,000 of them qualify for subsidized or free lunches, which means that they're on the very lower end of the economic scale. And so the schools are the places that provide their food, at least two meals a day, breakfast and lunch for these kids. And now with the schools closed, we're concerned that these kids may in many cases be unable to eat. There's 100,000 plus school children out of the 1.1 million who are homeless. And school is the place where they sometimes can take a shower and feel warm and change clothes. So this is just a devastating and uncertain time for us. As I said, people like myself, the adjustment has been far less. But obviously the people like myself are a minority in the 8.6 million people who live in New York. There's certainly a lot of fragility, both in New York and around the world. I I heard that uh, Norway have done something quite interesting where the schools are closed except for 
people who are health workers who uh, need to send their kids to, to school so that they can actually be at the front line. Maybe this is a, a call for some innovative leadership uh, and, and some new ideas on, on how we can react. Yeah, the, the, you're exactly right. The, the two things that one always needs in a crisis above everything else, on the one hand, highly competent and compassionate leadership, and on the other hand, social solidarity and trust. It's a real test right now of our leadership here in New York uh, at the state level and also obviously at the federal level in Washington. It's a test of our leadership, but it's also a test of our social solidarity. Everyone knows we're all in this together. You're only as strong as your weakest link, your most vulnerable population. You tell people to shelter at home so as not to spread the virus. And then you discover that there's a gigantic population of homeless people that you haven't been paying attention to, whether out of indifference or just because uh, you forgot. And now they are a threat to you, not because they're bad people, but because they can't follow the directions of sheltering at home. They don't have a home. Very large prison population living in close quarters. If the virus spreads through the prisons, they become an incubator that endangers us all. We're seeing measures to reduce the prison population, to release nonviolent offenders early, to arrest fewer people for nonviolent crimes or misdemeanors. And so there is a shift underway. The various institutions are trying to respond, but it's, uh, it's, the challenge is greater than we're used to. And the biggest problem is we don't know how long it's gonna go on. It's one thing for the kids to be out of school for a couple of weeks, as was announced. It's another thing for them not to be able to go back to school at all through the rest of the term and maybe even into the next year. So the, you're right, we do need some creativity in our leadership. We have a very strong society. That is to say the civil society is really strong in the U.S. Also to our advantage is the federal system. We're not dependent on one set of leadership. We have city leadership, we're city government, state government, and federal government. And so if any part of the government is not up to the challenges, another part can potentially step in. And we're seeing that too, uh, unevenly, but nonetheless, we're seeing that. So there is some hope that we can rise to the test here as a society but the shock and the, the eeriness and the uncertainty are, are still the predominant mood. I think this uncertainty and the pervasiveness of the impact is potentially a, a fundamental shift in, in how we should be assessing risk. I don't know what the answer is, but what's your view on, on the way, you know, in the context of investments at least, you know, backward-looking risk assessments are the norm, how can we shift that and have more forward-looking, more encompassing views of risk? Yeah, that's a perennial question and certainly Conexus has been exploring that at every one of your important international gatherings. The problem is, is that um, assessments of risk 
during normal times are generally not sufficient for when the abnormal times hit. Our risk assessments are uh, smart, they're thorough, uh, they're improving, but they generally regard the kind of events that we've been experiencing as black swans. With our risk models, just about everything now seems to have become a black swan. That is to say, everything that upends the risk models. So that's a problem. A black swan should be very, very occasional, extremely rare. Uh, but when one black swan keeps happening after another, that tells you that the risk models uh, are part of your problem. So the, the main challenge is to identify what is systemic risk. Systemic risk is something we talk about a great deal endlessly talking about systemic risk, but it's the systems part that we talk about a lot less or we take seri less seriously. That is to say the idea that there are dynamic and nonlinear and complex interactions. These things are not predictable. They're unstable. They're, they're not easily discernible. They're very, very difficult, almost impossible to model, which is one of the reasons we can't pay enough attention to them. So now, fortunately, in biology and in physics, we have a tremendous amount of high-level work. It's only been partly absorbed into economics. And this work is about the pervasive and unintended consequences, about how very small changes in one place of a system can precipitate very large and, in fact, delayed effects in another place of the system. This kind of modeling of systemic risk, what you might call systems and complexity theory, shows that efficiency can be very fragile and redundancy can be very resilient. You'll probably remember that uh, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, one of our best performing, most impressive companies, he once said that inventory was evil. And that kind of sums up the mentality that, um, risk is underrated or, or not well understood during normal times. There are just a tremendous number of single points of failure. You might argue that single points of failure are ubiquitous. So if you can't model complexity in systems thinking, systemic risk very easily, it's very hard to work it into your portfolios. And instead you model a kind of linear risk, not a dynamic, nonlinear, complex interaction risk understanding. So this doesn't apply to everyone. Obviously there are people who understand this full well. They've seen the work in biology and physics. They've incorporated into their economic risk assessments or their geopolitical risk assessments. We're talking generally as an industry. And unfortunately, nothing changed after the last black swan or the previous black swan or the black swan before that. And so whether we'll be better at risk after this, yet another black swan remains to be seen. Uh, but it would be a good thing if we changed our understanding, our assessments of risk going forward. I hope you're right that this could be a fundamental trigger, a trigger for a fundamental shift. So do you think this notion that you're referring to of you know, adaptive complex systems you know, maybe a first step to moving towards that kind of acknowledgement and risk assessment 
is moving away from just financial data and actually getting on. It has to be. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's always been a challenge, obviously, to the finance industry that's obsessed with the numbers um, and actually having a, a wider purview and obviously sustainability comes into that. You know, people who work in meteorology, they've been doing this for a long time now. They understand the difficulty of predictability and they talk about the climate weirding, getting weirder, getting more extreme. They don't talk about a, a linear process or a unilinear process that it's moving in one direction. They talk about how it's moving in multiple directions at once and we can't really understand fully. So we're observing it, but we're having a hard time modeling it. And in fact, many of the climate models have fallen short. The predictions have been wrong. Once again, not because the people are bad. They're highly trained, highly skilled experts. But just because of the difficulty, once you acknowledge the dynamic nonlinear quality of the interactions, you know, it's the old um, metaphor of the butterfly flaps the wings in Brazil and there's a tornado a month later in Texas, right? That was the scientific metaphor that people used. There's controversy about whether that particular metaphor works, but that's the kind of stuff we're talking about, where something small in one place can precipitate something large in another place. So if you're measuring risk, what are you supposed to be focusing on? You're supposed to be focusing on the way the pieces interact together. And, and that's the part when we talk about systemic risk, we need to raise our game. Stephen, your research interests include authoritarianism, geopolitics and the global political economy. Just turning to geopolitics for a moment, arguably the geopolitical landscape was fragile at best before this latest health pandemic and the magnitude of the impact of that. What's your view of how different regimes are handling the crisis and what impact is that having on the already fragile geopolitical situation? Yes. Yes, you're, you're, you're exactly right. The, that's a really big and important question for us to try to get some understanding on. Uh, the biggest geopolitical factor in the world has been for a long time, remains and will be going forward, the U.S.-China relationship. We've been arguing at Conexus for a number of years now at our gatherings that the relationship is getting worse, that it's structural, not personality-driven, that it was foreseeable that it would get worse. And it has very significant, in fact, potentially unpriceable consequences for portfolios. So the pandemic is not causing the friction in the relationship, obviously, but it is accelerating that trend. That's what happens in a crisis. Already existing structural trends generally get a boost. They're enhanced by the crisis. So this is something to be very concerned about. The unwinding of the interdependence of China and the US. Both sides became wary and ultimately uh, rejected the degree of interdependence that they saw because they were vulnerable to actions by the other side. 
once they see that the other side has leverage and power over them by cutting off this or cutting off that or putting a tariff on this or putting a tariff on that, then, of course, you can't go back to business as usual because you know that they have this leverage over you and you want to eliminate that leverage. So the decoupling that we're seeing, the shifting of the supply chains, the ramping up of the rhetoric, all of that is only going to get worse and it needs to be managed and it needs to be managed by both sides. The tensions are not going to go away, but the management of the tensions can be better or worse, depending on the statesmanship. Now, as far as the handling of the epidemic, there's this delusion about authoritarianism being more effective and about uh, democracies being feckless, supposedly feckless and incapacitated when it comes to crises. That's fundamentally wrong. It's exactly the opposite. You don't have to be a student of World War II, but if you look at World War II for a second, you'll recall that the democracies won. And they won World War II because they far outmobilized the authoritarian regimes. The U.S. and the U.K. proved better able to mobilize more resources to fight the war in free countries than either Nazi Germany or Japan. Now, the Soviet Union looks like a partial exception to this rule, but it was allied with the democracies. And the Soviet leader, Joseph Stalin, he fought a war that was utterly heedless of human life and costs. So it still holds that it was the democracies that outperformed, that outmobilized the authoritarians. We see that today. Uh, the virus, um, for reasons that we still don't understand, uh, still needs to be investigated, uh, originated in a region of China, Wuhan, China. The Chinese regime lied about the outbreak, uh, covered it up, punished people who talked about it. This enabled the outbreak to escape from China and could have been contained potentially had the Chinese regime reacted more like the Danes or the Norwegians or some of the other examples you might allude to. The Chinese regime, unfortunately, is still lying about the disease. Now, China was capable of imposing a lockdown on large parts of its population, but other countries which are not authoritarian can do the same. We're seeing that in democratic countries in Europe and the U.S. as well. The difference is the, the trust and social solidarity that goes along with the lockdown. So, uh, so the, the virus moved from countries that were most connected to China, obviously, because that's where the virus originated. Uh, so Iran suffered greatly. Italy suffered greatly. And they have both not reacted well to the original challenge of the virus and are suffering the consequences of a slower reaction. But other countries connected to China uh, were much faster to react, and they're not authoritarian regimes, they're democracies, and they've performed in outstanding fashion. So Hong Kong, Taiwan, and South Korea, for example. All three of them have been exemplary in their ability to deal with this threat, and none of them uh, are authoritarian or have enacted the same kind of measures as mainland China.
So that's a model for us going forward to remember that trust and social solidarity is a, is a key strength an overriding strength. And that uh, the more you squander trust and the more you squander social solidarity, the, the less you're able to deal with not just this pandemic, but others. So I think we're seeing in real time a differentiation between the kinds of regimes, uh, authoritarian and democracy speaking broadly, there's differentiation between them. We don't want to say every authoritarian regime is the same and every democracy is the same, but nonetheless, there is a clear difference. And that difference is on the side of the democratic regimes to perform in a crisis. That's not to say the Chinese haven't done better. They have, uh, that's not to say that the Chinese, uh, should be discounted going forward because in fact we may end up getting the vaccine from Chinese laboratories, which are well-funded with high level expertise, like much of the Chinese economy, not just the, the medical profession. It could well be that this virus originated in China, but the China comes to the rescue with uh, being first or being early on a vaccine. In fact, I predict that there will be a U.S.-China competition to get the vaccine first, the kind of way that the U.S. and the Soviets competed to get to the moon first. And that can be good for humankind if they compete to be the first one because it could well accelerate the efforts on both sides. And sometimes competition can be a very good thing when managed properly, as it could be in this case. But I don't want us to think that authoritarian regimes have solutions here and that, therefore, we should be giving up uh, some of our civil liberties or democratic institutions or rule of law, overriding them. On the contrary, that's our strength. So you're alluding to something here, Stephen, which might bring us to the topic that we want to talk about, this, the spread of the virus due to the connectivity of global economies. Now, you've been a regular speaker at our Fiduciary Investors Symposium. Is this something that you were going to talk about with investors, this fragility of globalisation? Can you expand a little bit more on this? Yes, I'm very sorry we're unable to gather at Oxford as previously planned. I hope to reschedule. So we've been arguing at the Conexus uh, events for a better part of a decade, almost a decade now that globalization has always rested on a paradox. There's very deep, far-reaching integration and interdependence, and there's very shallow uh, global governance mechanisms. We don't really have genuine global governance mechanisms, certainly nothing which is commensurate with the level of integration and interdependence we have. So forget about even just the world level, think about the EU. The EU has a monetary union without fiscal union. There's no viable path to fiscal union. At the same time, there's only minority sentiment to abandon the monetary union. People like the monetary union, but its fragility became clear without the fiscal union, and there's no viable path forward to the fiscal union. Now, uh, it's very hard to unwind the EU, and in fact, there's no mass movement to unwind the EU, uh, certainly not yet. At the same time, there's no effective way 
to manage the increased risks that have come with the monetary union and open borders and everything else. So the predicament of the EU is uh, unfortunately uh, a metaphor or an example that provides an insight into this larger paradox for the global world. So if at the EU level, they can't get a genuine governance across the EU to match the level of integration into dependence, you can only imagine the challenge for the world as a whole. So this paradox of globalization, which has brought incredible wealth, incredible increases in well-being and in uh, poverty reduction, in education levels, and something close to a billion people been lifted out of poverty uh, in our lifetime in the past couple of decades, in large part because of some of the successes of globalization. So we all understand that, and we all don't want to lose that. But we don't have uh, the mechanisms in hand to manage the other parts of globalization. And so that was going to be the main topic of my presentation. So obviously you're a scholar of history, uh, and these things uh, follow a narrative over time. Can you tell us how globalization ended last time and what we might be able to learn from that? Yes, well, we do have a very substantial historical record. The first globalization of the period uh, after the 1850s through uh, the interwar, the period between World War I and World War II. Of course, there was an earlier period of so-called voyages of discovery, Vasco da Gama, which was a integrating uh, epoch to a certain extent, but there was a superficial degree of the integration. It was mostly at ports, not hinterlands. It was mostly luxury goods. You could go back to the Mongols, also in Eurasia, where there was a certain integration. But the real globalization, which matches our era and in some ways actually surpassed our era, was that period of the late 19th, early 20th century. So that's an important period to focus on. And what do we see happen? We see that tremendous integration and interdependence, a rise in wealth, a rise in opportunity, across the globe, by the way, unevenly distributed, obviously. There's also rising inequality. But on the whole, uh, we see superb uh, wealth creation, entrepreneurialism, and parts of the world that had not been doing well started to do better and lift people out of poverty. And then several things happened. Any immigration laws. There was a reaction to the free flow of people across the globe. People are focused on integration, immigration, which has brought tremendous benefits, both to the countries where people arrive, uh, arrive and to the people themselves who undertake this great risk uh, to try to find a new life for themselves and their family. But others felt threatened and anti-immigration laws proliferated. That was the canary in the coal mine moment, the beginning of the backlash. There was, of course, a global pandemic in 1918, the so-called Spanish flu. It had nothing to do with Spain. 
It appears to have originated in the United States. It traveled the world on navies, on troop ships, because World War I was still going on at the time that the Spanish flu broke out. There was wartime censorship in Germany, France, Britain, and the U.S. Uh, Spain was a neutral. There was no wartime censorship. And Spain got tagged with the flu because it reported the flu epidemic in its country. Then there was the Great Depression of the 1930s. No need to detail that for your audience either. And then, of course, there were two world wars, the First World War and the Second World War. So the first globalization ended very badly. Anti-immigration laws, the global pandemic, the Great Depression, two world wars, you'd have to say it was a failed experiment. Now, in the period after World War II, we tried to create a different world, a world that would not repeat the disasters that had just been experienced. 55 million dead, for example, in the Second World War alone, globally. And so there has been an attempt to learn from this first era of globalization. But now I think we're going to study it even more because there are eerie resemblances uh, to our own time right now. So that's not a great picture. Um, is there any good news in this, Stephen? What's different about the year 2020? Is there going to be the same outcome or is there any predictable good news in all of this? Well, we can't predict the future. The past only teaches us what happened in the past and what could happen again. The difference in 2020 is that we can study the previous example. Back then in 1914 or 1918, they couldn't study the previous example of how globalization had gone bad. They couldn't learn any lessons. They couldn't take actions to prevent some of the trends that were dangerous and ultimately destructive. We can do that. We can study the past and of course we can intervene. Science is very different now compared then. Of course that cuts both ways. You have science enabling much greater destructive power. For example, nuclear weapons or chemical weapons or internet warfare, cyber warfare. At the same time, science is potentially your solution. That is to say, it's the vaccine that we need. It's science that's telling us how to deal with the pandemic. So the advances in science have been great. And that's very important in addition to the ability to study the past. Also, we have a larger block of democratic countries now than we had in 2020. The world during the period before the First World War was not democratic rule of law predominant. There were a lot of new democracies that were born in the period right after World War I as a result of World War I, but they eroded or imploded or were overthrown. So that authoritarianism became predominant global in the 1930s. Today, authoritarianism remains a widespread phenomenon around the world. Nonetheless, we have a very big democratic bloc now. The so-called five eyes, 
or the countries uh, in alliance with the United States, which are related to the original British Empire, including obviously Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Britain, and the United States. The EU, as we were talking about earlier, and of course the United States is a global power now with a sense of responsibility, even if it wavers, it nonetheless has a deeper sense of responsibility than it used to have before. So we have a lot better tools now than we had back then and a lot better awareness. But in the end, the decisive variables are gonna be leadership, statesmanship, managing the challenges, and the social solidarity and trust that I was alluding to. So we need to build those up in order to manage where we are. And so we could have a very different outcome this time. We could master the challenge we're in. The U.S. and China could manage their tensions going forward. We could get a better financial system than the fragile and risk-inducing one that we have now. None of it is preordained that we have to have a bad outcome. In fact, it's in our hands. The power is in our hands to have a better outcome. And we'd all like to see that, and we'd all like to work towards it. And let's start now. So, Stephen, recognising that we are talking about something incredibly complex, but that you have mentioned we can learn from the past and intervene, is there any one particular focus or trigger point for that intervention that will potentially change the course of history? The issue is the status quo ante versus imagining a better future. There's a lot of pressure now to support all sorts of individuals and businesses under threat. The airline industry, the hospitality industry, and one could go on down the list. And they're really in a bad way, and large numbers of people are already being thrown out of work, and vast numbers of people could be thrown out of work. But should we go back to the status quo ante, should we invest our taxpayer money, our various different stimulus packages, our government action, should it be invested in getting us back to where we were? Was the path that we were on sustainable? Was it the path that we would choose if we were starting again as societies? Of course, we disagree on these questions. These are questions of politics and of values, and they're very difficult questions. But it's worth asking in a first principle conversation about what it is that we should invest in now to save and rescue and what it is that we should potentially begin to rearrange for a more sustainable, less fragile, more resilient future for the planet. I think people understand this. It's just that they have differences of opinion on what would that more sustainable, more resilient future look like. Nonetheless, I think it's important to have that conversation in the crisis management, not just to throw money at this and at that, however great the emergency, however difficult the people's lives are who are now thrown into the chaos. Nonetheless, it behooves us to figure out a better way and a better way that's consensual 
that involves broad numbers of people involved in the conversation, consultation, and is not an elite-imposed, top-down, interest group, lobbying mechanism, response to the crisis, like, for example, we had in 2009. Stephen, let's just turn to the view of the investor for a moment and taking an extreme position that this is the beginning of the end of globalisation. Most large institutional investors have huge international allocations, in, particularly in the equities market over time. They've been moving away from a home bias and obviously in other asset classes, including private markets, increasingly looking offshore and outside of their own domestic allocations. What would the end of globalisation look like for an investor and how should they be managing their portfolios? Yes, let's remember, globalisation, you're right, that, that, that is the question that we need to at least think about both long-term and short-term. Short-term, it's clear. There's carnage, there's chaos, there's panic, there's great damage to portfolios. Most of your investors, however, are long-term investors. And long-term investors, although there is a pain in the short term and there is the inclination to panic, long-term investors have the luxury of thinking things through. And even though globalization blew up last time and it was just unbelievable pain, nonetheless, it came back. And so I think we can imagine a future in which globalization unwinds in the short and potentially medium term, but does not vanish altogether and comes back strong, maybe in the medium, but certainly in the long term. There's no guarantee that that happens, but nonetheless, that's a possibility. The benefits of globalization are far greater than the people who talk about globalization as a positive have been able to convey. We now understand the costs much better. We also need to recall and understand and contextualize the benefits. So it's that old balance between the costs and the benefits. So in the short term, uh, investors are going to unavoidably feel great pain, unwind, whatever they can when it comes to high-risk localities or high-risk interdependencies. This is not going to do much for them. It may reduce some of the carnage, or they may miss out on some of the recovery, depending on how this plays out, once again, if we get a better handle on it. So the long-term investor, it's, it's about the same things it's been about for some time now. It's about investing where the governance is strong, where the values are good, where the human capital is excellent, where the infrastructure is good or getting better, right? These are not secrets. These are things we understand. The old joke about how when the, the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked, well, crises do that. We know that they do that. You see who's vulnerable, who was really not, ha didn't have the business model they claim to have, didn't have the long-term plan or the long-term profitability plan that they claim to have. But you also see strength emerging. You also see a lot of people who did things right, who did have 
a system engineered for success in difficult times, not just in good times. So I think as things shake out, we'll relearn all those lessons about where strength is versus where vulnerability is, where seeming or ostensible opportunity is, but not real opportunity. And, and those are lessons that need to be relearned and are relearned. The issue, however, is the, the long-term versus the short and the medium-term ability to absorb pain. People are retiring now. And some of our big institutional investors have very significant cash flow issues in non-crisis times. And so we worry about them even if in the long term they can come up with a plan to do well. Stephen, we've covered a fair bit of ground. If I might just pause to have a, a summarise of, of what we've covered and, and the key takeaway really is the fragility of the environment and the economy due to three things. The underlying paradox of globalisation, the lack of recognition of adaptive complex systems and a stagnant political organising framework. But there is some hope, uh, I think, is the key message that, that you've given. Is there any parting word to the audience listening that you'd like to leave with them? Uh, thank you for, for that excellent summary. You know, I, I don't have much wisdom. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that I, I can... Uh, impart any wisdom. I don't think closing. that's true, actually, Stephen, that you don't have much wisdom. I think the opposite is actually true. But uh... Well, it's kind of you to say that, but I'd just like to say that I've learned a tremendous amount and I've gotten a lot smarter and I've understood the world a lot better because of the conferences that Connexus has put together. They've been huge, beneficial, intellectual growth opportunities for me. The networking opportunities uh, for many people are about business, and I, that's fully understandable, uh, business opportunities that you provide. For me, it's the intellectual opportunity. Uh, Connexus is an intellectual resource. It's a community of high-powered individuals from across many walks of life and many countries with very different experience, but a willingness to learn and to share their experiences with others. And this is our power. This is our strength. It's our strength in a crisis, and it's our strength in normal times. And we need to hold on to that, and we need to actually double down on that. Stephen Kotkin, you've been very generous with your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well. <laughs> 